Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the Institute's Director, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this discussion on the form at the Centre of Government with Lord Maud of Horsham, Francis Maud. The catalyst for this event is that Francis Maud has been asked by the government to undertake a short review into the performance of the Cabinet Office and its relationship with the rest of government, that is, whether it works well. And that's been triggered partly by a discussion about whether it doesn't work well in the light of coronavirus. So we're going to talk about the focus of Lord Maud's review, what the government's handling of coronavirus uh, has revealed about the Cabinet Office, and just more generally some questions of civil service and government reform. And there is going to be an opportunity for questions via the questions and answers panel on the team's live stream page. So please start sending those questions now. There's a lot of you uh, on this and a very warm welcome, um, but we'll try and get through as many questions as we can. Francis Maud, as you know, has had a long career in government and is a long-standing advocate of the need for reform in the civil service and government more generally. As Minister for the Cabinet Office from 2010 to 2015, he led an efficiency and reform programme and he and his team developed the functional model of government, which sounds like jargon, but has been an absolutely crucial piece of work to improve professional skills and efficiency. And that that is something that the Institute has been very much behind. Francis Maud, a very warm welcome. Thank you very much. Very good to be with you, Bronwyn. Well, this review has been described as your comeback, if you like. You <laughs> pushed for big reforms to government during the, the David Cameron uh, government. And while some might have withered, and I'm thinking of giving officials performance rankings and, and perhaps more external support for ministers, things we might talk about, others have definitely flourished, as the Institute has commented on. For example, the government's skill in striking commercial contracts and in, in digital services, and coronavirus has definitely drawn on that, that latter one. So lots of hopes are being placed on your review. Um, the FT had, uh, had um, uh, according to them, uh, Michael Gove asking you to review the efficiency of the Cabinet Office and its work on project management and reining in departmental spending and all kinds of stuff about property management and human resources as well. And the Cabinet Office itself has said, uh, rather uh, briefly but ambitiously, you are conducting a short review on how to increase the efficiency and effectiveness of government functions and spending. So quite a lot there. I wonder if we can just start with talking about that review, um, probably for about 10 minutes, and then broaden it out to wider questions of reform, and then we'll start taking people's questions. Um, can, you, can you just say for us where um, what, what you're aiming to do with this review? Okay, well, um, the, the, the review was never formally announced, but it seemed to have leaked out into newspapers in a slightly um, muddled, uh, muddled form. The, the terms of, of reference are very clear and specific. They're to look at the operation of the Cabinet Office spend controls. These are controls that actually I introduced in 2010 and which have kept going in one form or another since. Um, and uh, the, the second part is to look at the operation of the cross-cutting horizontal functions that run across government, the ones which are headquartered uh, in the Cabinet Office. And the third element is uh, to assess progress um, on uh, civil service reform since we've published the first civil service reform paper uh, in 2012. Um, given that there's on that last subject, there's a huge amount of work going on inside government, uh, there'd be much uh, vaunted uh, noises coming out of number 10 and Michael Gove has uh, made a powerful speech at Ditchley earlier in the summer 
about this uh, and we then agreed that the sensible way for me to fulfill the third part was to work with Michael and his team on this uh, uh, future reform of the civil service which kind of uh, inevitably brings in some kind of assessment of what's happened since 2012 uh, and all that. So that, that's what I'm doing. Um, I've, uh, I've finished the first two parts. Um, I've submitted the final reports. Um, ministers will have to decide what they want to do with it. Um, I, I'm told that there is a desire to publish them. So, um, uh, so that may all emerge in, in due course. And how much of then of what you're doing is about the cabinet office, which is is very much how this review was reported in the beginning. Well, a lot of it is. I mean, um, uh, and it it is really looking at the spend controls which are operated in the cabinet office and by the cabinet office. These are treasury controls. Um, but what we did in 2010 was we got the treasury to carve out of its kind of inherent authority um, some very specific controls which were delegated to me and they've continued to be operated by cabinet office ministers since um, and the second part of it essentially i mean you described it as the functional model um, it's an essentially a review of how that's worked uh, and uh, how that's been developed since um, and some of it's good but some of it's not good uh, since then um, and there are some fairly fundamental things which uh, we kind of managed to fudge successfully during the coalition government uh, on the basis of um, uh, Danny Alexander, the then chief secretary and myself working very closely together. It was a coalition government, so it was a breadth of kind of political backing uh, for the approach. Uh, but some of it has definitely um, gone back. And I think some of the issues which we did fudge at the time can no longer be fudged in view of some of the concerns that have been expressed about effectiveness in government. Oh, and we'll come on to the functional agenda that, 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 that you've mentioned, but just briefly for those who are not as steeped in government um, uh, language, we're talking about things like financial skills, commercial skills, digital skills and so on, these, these things across government. Can we, can we just um, then just pick up your point that you've just made about things that were fudged, uh, to, to, to use your word, but can no longer be fudged. What is the problem, the urgent problem um, well, the, you, among think, others, are trying to solve? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I think one of the problems is that there is um, uh, a, a view uh, deeply entrenched in the official Treasury establishment um, about uh, what the role of the centre should be. Uh, and this came to light vividly um, in, I think, 2014, when the then chairman of the Public Accounts Committee um, wrote to three senior permanent secretaries, the head of the Treasury, um, the head of the Civil Service and the Permanent Secretary in the Cabinet Office. Uh, and Margaret Hodge, then chairman of PAC, was urging them to strengthen the centre uh, of government to make it a much more effective and stronger centre of government. Um, what then happened was, um, these three permanent secretaries sent her a reply, basically brushing her off um, and saying, no, no, this is not the way we do things. And the British government and government policy is not that. Margaret raised that with me in the Commons and said, what's going on with this letter? Uh, I, I said, what letter? Um, because they hadn't shown it to me or to, or to Danny. Uh, and we then, when we found out what had happened, we wrote a, 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 a letter to put the record straight um, about what we believed as the ministers kind of accountable to parliament for this, uh, how, how things ought to be running. The essential treasury view is that um, permanent secretaries, accounting officers, 
have a kind of um, a, a, an indivisible line of accountability to Parliament and to the Public Accounts Committee. And that if the centre of government becomes too strong and too interventionist, then that is uh, that imperils that line of accountability. Well, it's a bit of a fiction anyway, because there is no real time accountability there. The PAC has a really important role, but it operates in arrears. Um, and um, uh, and what was ironic, of course, was that um, this defense of the historic approach um, of uh, de defending accountability to Parliament was being challenged by exactly the people in Parliament who, who were uh, exercising uh, this oversight. Um, and so, uh, the, the, and, and this was fudged at the time, but it's been used since to um, degrade and erode the functional model. Um, and, and the um, uh, culture of departmentalism has, has reasserted itself. Um, and um, so I recently, when I started this work, I saw a document um, talking about some changes to the spend controls, which contained this, the sentence. Uh, and of course, we will tell departments that exercising these spend controls will not in any way interfere with their operational independence. Well, of course they will. There's nothing more fundamental to operational independence than how you spend uh, your money. But finance ministries typically, and the Treasury is, clearly is in this category, finance ministers typically um, are take what they do is they operate within a silo model. And so they set a budget for each spending ministry. And as long as you can show that what you want to spend money on is covered by a line in the budget, then their interest ends. Whereas we in the Cabinet Office in 2010 concerned to cut the running costs, the overhead costs of government, knew that we need to look in real time at how the money is being spent. Is it being spent to good effect? And that was the origin of the spend controls. Yeah. And that was the beginning of developing the functional model where you look at these cross-cutting horizontal functions like financial management, procurement, uh, digital and IT, property, project management, all of these things which are recognizably the same function and require the same kinds of skills wherever you find them in government, but which typically in governments are divided up into the silos, uh, which means uh, government works much less effectively. Yes. Now, as you've described it, I mean, the British government does have um, a long history of, as you said, uh, working with the Treasury very much as you've described, getting departments to meet their budgets of not, of, of, of not overspending uh, some individual projects aside, um, but has been much, much less successful than what you've also just described of, of looking at how that money is spent and whether it's spent to best effect and indeed at the performance of, of, of government departments. What kind of accountability would you like to see of, say, the permanent secretaries uh, to the centre of government? We're, we're talking really about number 10 of the Cabinet Office here, um, perhaps the Treasury as well. What what kind of accountability, um, if it's not, as you said, uh, the classic answer of, well, they're accountable as accounting officers to Parliament? Well, I think you, I, th I think we have to say that in the, the modern world uh, and the world we're in, which is digitally very, very closely connected or can be, um, we need to have a different, to think about government in a different way. And we need to think of the center of government, which clearly in our system is essentially 
number 10, cabinet office and the treasury, think of that as being the headquarters function for government. Um, and, you know, departments are kind of departments, the clues in the name. Um, and, um, uh, and obviously they have a high degree of autonomy. Um, the ministers in charge of departments, subject to collective responsibility, of course, um, have, have policy <coughs> autonomy. But the idea uh, that you can have completely unaccountable uh, uh, um, responsibility for delivery, for implementation, and for spending money, which is only accountable a long time in arrears, is, is just absurd. No, no modern effective organisation would work like that. Which is why the spend controls mm. were so important, uh, because we then said, well, you know, this may be. Um, you may have be able to show us a line in your budget that covers this expenditure, but do you actually need to be buying 50 new vehicles or whatever it might be? Um, uh, is that actually necessary? And if it isn't, then we're going to stop you doing it. Uh, and, um, and but if it, even if it is necessary, is this the right way to spend the money? Is this is this good value? And that's when you then get into um, ways of spending money more effectively through the government buying um, commodity goods and services uh, for the whole of government using its buying power, which is obviously very considerable, to drive down prices and drive up quality. And mm. so uh, that, that kind of real-time accountability, and, and ministers by and large were fine with this. Um, they didn't have a problem. They didn't want actually they, they just want their IT to work well. They want the maximum amount of their budget to be available to spend on frontline services and the delivery of important programs. And if that, the center can help them to make the money go further, then they were thrilled. It tended to be the permanent secretaries and the most senior civil servants um, who, were, who, who felt in some way threatened by this. The best of them not, the best of them said, we totally see the point of this and we think it makes sense. But, you know, there was quite a lot of resistance, I think it's fair to say. Yes. What's your view about the centre then, having having done this, and particularly about the Cabinet Office? Is it too big, too sprawling, too unstructured, or, or actually too small, as some people have said, saying, uh, look, uh, it doesn't have um, as many policy experts as, uh, for example, some other countries do. There's a piece of IFG work that says uh, not, not as many, for example, as in Australia, Canada, Germany. What, what, what is your view about um, the cabinet office in particular? Well, I don't think size is everything. I think um, I, I think the first thing I would say about the centre of government is that it needs to be much more joined up, um, and um, and the treasury and and uh, cabinet office need to be much more joined up. I think actually there's a case for <clears throat> uh, bringing to get taking the bringing much more closely together the. Um, spending part of the treasury with the kind of functional center uh, of government in, in, in the cabinet office. Maybe something like um, the Office of Management and Budget in, in, in the United States, or maybe, you know, plenty of plenty of governments have a budget ministry. In Australia, you have a treasury which is like the finance ministry and a ministry of finance, which is actually the budget ministry um, in, in reality. And um, there are plenty of ways of the same in true in Canada. You have a, a budget ministry which is separate uh, from the Ministry of Finance. Um, and 
Um, and you would bring that closely together with the um, function, the functional centre of government in, in the cabinet office. So I think there's some. I, I'm not a big for tinkering with the structure of government. It tends to be a displacement activity um, that gives people an alibi for not actually doing the, the 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 real work that needs to be done. But I think structuring the centre of government a bit differently would would pay real. Uh, dividends. Is the cabinet office to be? It has grown hugely since my time. Um, some of the functions have grown uh, enormously. Clearly, you know, Brexit um, did impose some demands, but there was, after all, a separate Brexit uh, department. Um, and you know, and when I talk about the functional model, strong leadership of these functions, cross-cutting uh, functions at the centre of government, I don't mean huge centres. You need three elements for the functional model to work. You need a leader who has to have high technical credibility and authority. That's you a leader of, of that function, uh, for example, head of, of that function. head of national services. Yeah, so you need a head of um, a, 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 what is now being recruited, a chief digital officer, for example, to yeah. lead uh, the digital and IT function across government. You need a chief people officer, there is one. Uh, and the, uh, and they they need to be good. They need to have powers of leadership to get people to buy into what is being done and, and all of that. But they need high technical credibility. You need a hard core of capability uh, of, of again, really high end capability, uh, best in class capability at the center. But again, it doesn't need to be a lot of people, but it needs to be very good. And this and the, is an old campaign of the IFGs, I, I should say, to make sure that people at the head of the finance function have uh, excellent financial and accounting skills. Absolutely, no, that's crucial. And um, uh, and the, uh, and then you need a mandate, and the mandate is critically important. Um, and the mandate is the thing that too often gets uh, is is too weak. And if it's too weak, um, then you won't frankly get or keep the right leader of the function because if they the, the leader feels they've got to spend all of their time. Um, getting the attention of the departments around Whitehall, then they'll get uh, demoralised and, and leave. Without the right leader, you won't get or keep the right capability at the centre. And if you don't have the right capability at the centre, then the mandate gets eroded, it gets attacked. Um, and, and so these things, it is a, if you get it right, it's a virtuous circle. Uh, if you get it wrong, it goes into a downward spiral. And I'm afraid um, there's been some of that uh, in the functions since 2015. Yeah, you, you've been critical. You've had a long history of advocacy for reform, as I was saying at the beginning, and you've been critical at times, uh, very critical of, of aspects of the civil service, calling it, for example, defensive um, uh, and deeply flawed. Um, was there a time when you, looking back, when you think the civil service was great and suited to the challenges of that time? In which case, I'm wondering, you know, if so, what changed? Was it the civil service or the circumstances? Or maybe you never thought it was great? Well, I don't know, really. I mean, I, I'm not a big one for looking back. Um, and um, um, uh, I think it has been very good at various times. I mean, uh, Peter Hennessy um, uh, has written very interestingly about, about Whitehall. He's become a bit less radical than he used to be. Um, and in his big uh, history of, of, of Whitehall, he recounts how um, in the Second World War, drawing on the uh, flawed experience, but instructive experience of the First World War, the civil service was extremely good at bringing in people from outside 
and, and, and using them really effectively. So people from business, from academia, there was a huge influx of people into the civil service during the Second World War. And then there, at the end of the Second World War, there was a debate which was, should we continue with this? Should we continue with a much more um, heterogeneous um, civil service um, or should it revert to its very sort of tightly controlled, um, rather, I would say, insular um, um, approach which had characterized it before? Uh, and it was a debate. It was a, a vigorous debate. Uh, and the civil service establishment won um, decisively. Um, and that was in Peter's view, and I think that's right. He's a much better historian than I am. Um, I think he's right that that was a big opportunity lost. Um, and you see some of the effects of that now. I mean, one of the things I've gone on about is the uh, need for the, the existence of the class divide in the civil service and the need for parity of esteem. You have kind of white collar, uh, mainstream uh, policy, Mandarin type civil servants who basically, they're the white collar. They tend to get the top jobs. They're above the salt. And then there are blue collar below the salt, the people who, who are responsible for operational delivery, um, who are maybe the financial people, commercial, IT and digital, property, you know, project management. And they're kind of regarded as sort of, you know, your job, don't bother us. You go and um, take away what we've you decided. Go, go, you go and just do it. Let's, let's be clear, it's all uh, essentially uh, white collar jobs in the conventional sense. But, but, but as you said, there's a kind of cultural or class yeah. within the culture of the civil service. And too often they're kept away from ministers. Um, and uh, and you, have, you see a lot of problems arising from that. So the people who um, are uh, going to be charged with actually making things happen uh, and for operational delivery and implementation, if they were allowed to be and brought in to be much closer to ministers when the policy decisions are made, then a lot of the mistakes would be avoided because they would then be able to push back and say to ministers and to the senior policy civil servants, actually, if, you're try if, you, if that's what you're trying to achieve, this is not the right way to do it, it won't work. And a lot of the things which have failed um, have been because, um, because implementation uh, challenges were not sufficiently surfaced. And it's because the people close to ministers, the, the white, co white collar, as it were, uh, policy Mandarin type civil servants weren't equipped to be able to assess that. What do you think coronavirus has shown us about the government's ability to respond and, and particularly about the centre, the cabinet office that we're talking about? Is it just illuminating all these uh, failings that, that, that you've seen there or is it really so much of its own um, in the way of an emergency that um, it's um, unreasonable to expect any government, however well running, to handle all of this well? Well, I, I, I don't think it, there's any government in the world which has which, which you would be look at it and say this has been exemplary um, and this has been completely unprecedented. Um, coronavirus, COVID has raised challenges which nobody um, could have uh, could have um, envisaged um, and yet it is right that there were on the government's risk register um, at the, a pandemic it, uh, was definitely something which was there. Um, so could preparation have been better? Probably, but you never quite know how 
um, a pandemic, it, which is by definition kind of unique, um, uh, is going to play out. I, I, I would um, I, I would absolutely um, say that uh, the, 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 I think the government has handled this. Um, of course, there have been mistakes. Every government in the world dealing with this has, has made mistakes. Um, what I would say is that uh, you mentioned earlier, I've had a concern that the civil service tends to be uh, a bit defensive. Um, and, um, and I would say the NHS establishment is as well, and it tends to be inward looking. Um, and it's a combination, I think, of, of insecurity and, and complacency and a reluctance to expose the, uh, to the, the organization to scrutiny and comparison with outside, which is going back to the point about uh, uh, being much more receptive to incomers from outside the, the establishment. Um, uh, and I think uh, that has been a problem. I think there was a reluctance early on to, uh, particularly in the NHS establishment, to engage vigorously with the business community and with the academic community. And there were offers being made of, of help and assistance which were not taken up. Um, and I think that is uh, that is a, a deep cultural issue. It, there were some issues about capability as well. Procurement clearly was not being done nearly as well as it might have been. Uh, but again, there were, I don't see many governments around the world that that cope brilliantly with all those uh, with all of those demands. All right. Well, thanks for that. I wonder if you could just um, help us with one thing, which is what the country should make of this particular government's. Um, uh, passion for civil service reform. Um, and it may be quite clear the Institute is not, um, and it had no problem at all when this government came out of winning a big majority and said over the Christmas break, among other things, um, or indicated through, through uh, the Prime Minister's advisor that one of the things it really, really cared about ha happened to be our raison d'etre. But, you know, the, 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 there is a pandemic running and the government is, is uh, running as hard as it can to combat that. It had already uh, going into and coming out of the election an enormously ambitious agenda for levelling up the country. And reform of the civil service is not something that people are out in the streets about uh, with placards demanding it right now. So just why, and I don't mean this sceptically, but I just how should people in this country place the emphasis that this government has put on civil service reform uh, something you know that happens behind the scenes as one of its absolutely top priorities is is the problem that bad that it really needs urgent action now? Um, I think it, I think the problem is quite bad, um, and you know when I when I criticise the civil service and say that it's a flawed institution, I often get um, people come back and say, "Why are you always criticising civil servants?" And the answer is, "I'm not. I, I think we have absolutely some of the best civil servants in the world." Uh, I've worked with some superb civil servants, you know, high-minded, uh, clever, thinking about things in the right, the right motivations, uh, and lots of high capability. But I think the institution of the civil service is is pretty badly flawed. Uh, and I wrote at length about this. Um, the previous speaker of the House of Commons invited me to deliver a lecture um, on this three years ago, uh, where I set out a number of my um, concerns. Um, I, I think in a way um, it's wrong to talk about civil service reform because that kind of suggests that, that it's, this is one off. There's, there are, uh, and I don't think it is like that. When, when I was in the cabinet office, 
uh, people often used to say to me, Francis, all this reform, when's it going to come to an end? And, and we're a bit dismayed when I say never. Um, it, it should never come to an end because you know, th these days there is no such thing as business as usual. There is no such thing as steady state management. Um, any organization is either getting better or it's getting worse. And if you think it's staying the same, then believe me, it's, it's getting worse. Uh, and so you need to be what there needs to be instead is a kind of culture of continuous uh, improvement, continuous self-examination. And um, there's a wonderful in the civil service college in Singapore, there's a wonderful plaque on the wall. I mean, it's a quotation from some rather obscure previous public servant, and it says something like this. It is the duty of every public servant constantly to question existing methods and ways of doing things um, and, uh, and, and find better ways. Now, that is exactly the right culture that, that you need. And, and we, we don't have that in the civil service. There's, um, and, and indeed, in many um, big organizations, uh, you have to work hard to create an innovation-friendly um, culture. Uh, uh, and, and we don't have it. I mean, no one's career suffers from presiding over an inefficient status quo, but try something new that doesn't work and it can really um, damage your career. And that that's a really, really hard thing um, to do, but it's essential that it should be done. The um, uh, I think we'll come on to that in some of the questions I can see coming okay. in, really, which really get at that kind of thing. Me, I just ask you about the um, the, the, the retort or riposte that people sometimes raise uh, as a real point of unease about extensive changes to the civil service, which is about the risk of politicisation um, or, or, or putting civil servants in a very difficult position because of the very political nature um, of some of the work in which they may be involved. And, uh, you know, that's raised by all kinds of people, not just defensively or to stop change, but saying uh, look, look, the, the, some of the things, for example, some of the Brexit negotiations put civil servants in an extraordinarily difficult position. And we hear very much both sides of this at the Institute. We, we do, as you know, uh, quite a lot of private support to ministers um, about the kind of support they need, external support and something that you've uh, you've advocated for. And and we'll be very sympathetic about that, of ministers trying to get an enormous amount done very quickly, coming in and really wanting someone, people around them who can reflect back to them um, what it is they're trying to do. At the same time, um, you don't want to remove the role of an impartial civil service who might really have very good grounds for saying no minister. Um, how do you get that balance right? And what do you say to the uh, unease about politicisation? Well, I think it's largely an Aunt Sally. Um, um, it is put up there to uh, try to browbeat ministers into backing off. Um, I have absolutely no um, interest in what the political complexion of any civil servant um, is or, or has been. Um, in fact, I've um, many of the best civil servants I have um, worked with, uh, if I speculated at all on their political dimension preferences, it would certainly, my guess would have been they wouldn't have been remotely conservative. That honestly is not a concern. Um, and um, uh, what you, uh, and frankly, we are, we are, 
way out on a limb on this. We are very different from other comparable countries. In, in Australia, um, ministers have large offices with, with mainstream civil servants who are freed while they are in their off those offices from the constraints of political impartiality. Same in France. Um, and and they just manage. And, and the, the argument always is, oh, well, if they're too associated with ministers from one government, then they won't be able to be used by another government. Well, actually, sophisticated, grown-up systems find a way of managing that. And so they, you know, someone who in the French system who has been very closely associated with the senior minister, um, they kind of go somewhere where they can detox for a while. And then they're but but the, the, but there is a real understanding of the value for an effective government of ministers having people who can be close to them and effective in speaking truth to them. And, and this is a, an annoying phrase that's often used. We must have people who speak truth to power. Actually, the thing I complained about, one of the things I complained about as a minister when my last time in government was the reluctance of too many civil servants to speak truth to ministers. Um, and too often what you had was uh, officials not pushing back and then not doing it. And what you absolutely want, I mean, the best ones will say, I know you've decided this minister, but actually can I try and persuade you out of it? Um, and of course, if you're a sensible minister, of course you say, yes, I want to hear the arguments. If you've got some evidence which says, suggests that what I want to do isn't the right thing. I absolutely want to hear it now rather than later. So speaking truth under power is absolutely right. It has to be truth. Uh, and some ministers have raised concerns that too often the, adv the advice they get uh, is not based on real substantive evidence. But this politicization thing is, is a total um, red herring. Uh, it is not the concern that ministers have about being about their ability to influence senior appointments much more is not about having people who are politically congenial. It is about having people who that who whose um, principal um, um, accountability is to them, not to the other civil servants who appointed them. I suppose is the crunch point on this. Yeah. No, well, thanks for setting that out. And it's something the Institute's written a lot about um, in a way that the yes minister was, was correct in many, many ways, except for the central conceit. Uh, that is, that civil servants often feel under pressure to say yes, much, much more than they do no. Um, it would be wrong of me to ask you to set out here in public uh, the, the uh, conclusions you've already sent in, in private to the government. But, uh, but nonetheless, um, if, you, if you could pick a bunch of things that you wanted done uh, right now as part of this, uh, the government's uh, reform, what would they be? Well, I think um, one of the things I regret is that the um, custom we started of publishing every year, um, the savings that had been made through, the efficiency savings that had been made through spend controls and functional reform, that's been discontinued. And this was a very powerful uh, thing. We, we were able to show that cumulatively over five years, we saved uh, over 52 billion pounds, essentially from the running costs of government, and that rate they rose every year compared with the base, uh, with the base year, 3.75, 5, 10, 14, 19 um, um, billion over that, over that period, and that series was discontinued. The Treasury was always very negative about publishing these figures um, because, and and their their view was, well, these aren't savings that come back to the Treasury. 
Um, and, and of course, they're not. They are. This is money that is prevented from being wasted so that the money that is being spent can be spent on the things that, that really matter. And of course, the advantage from the Treasury is that that then releases or reduces the pressure for additional spending that would otherwise uh, flow as a result of wasted money. So I would absolutely want to reinstate that. Um, there was a cabinet committee we had, which Danny Alexander and I co-chaired, uh, on efficiency and reform, uh, and that's been discontinued. And so there's much less ministerial attention on these on these areas. Um, uh, I think uh, the mandates for a number of these scenes, of these central functions has been diluted since then, and that then goes back to the point about undermining of the functional model and this sort of uh, the resurgence of departmentalism, the resurgence of the silo model versus the functional model. Those are the kinds of areas where um, um, I, I would want to see changes and, and there will be you know, plenty of places around the system where this is not what people want to hear. Let's come on to the questions. There's a lot of excellent ones. We'll start with one from John Burt who says, I wholeheartedly agree with Francis's overview, but would he agree, in addition, that there is a real weakness in the Treasury's oversight of spending, an absence of the kind of financial analytical capability found in the best of the private sector? Yeah, no, I, John is absolutely right. And John did some great work on this when he was uh, based in number 10 with Tony Blair. He, he understood it very, very, very well indeed. Um, and um, but that but that's the point really. The treasury, what the treasury are very good at, is has lots of extremely clever um, economists, and they're very good at doing the kind of cost benefit analysis, um, which helps to inform the decisions on what uh, how to allocate money between programs and and, and projects. But what they're not good at doing, and, they, they're, and they're simply, it's not a criticism, but they're simply not set up to do it, is to assess what the cost should be. So the point that we, that what we created started to do was to say, yes, we, you can, there's obviously decisions to be made on the cost benefit ratio of any particular uh, decision and project. But have you really understood what the costs are? Are the are, are, is your assessment of the cost realistic and, and can they be uh, reduced and can the can the operation the, the delivery risk be reduced? I mean, one of the reasons why the Treasury has historically been and it's very understandable, been very skeptical about big projects is that too often um, they massively overrun in time and uh, and cost and the and the social and economic benefits are therefore compromised. Um, and, and so they kind of uh, are negative, that's why the deep negativity about HS2, for example, um, but also many other big infrastructure projects. Mm. Uh, and, but the way to deal with that is not to stop them happening, but to make sure they happen well. And the Treasury doesn't have good insights uh, into, into that. That's why we set up the major projects authority. Now, mm. the, infrastructure and projects authority to to improve and which it has done delivery great thank you thank you for that i'm going to take the next two together because they're really about the same thing which is about um pay compared to the private sector and i've got one from um alison ring from the icaw 
who says having spent 25 years in HMRC recruiting high quality accountancy professionals, there is only so much public sector goodwill that can be leveraged. How can you persuade government that civil service professionals require market rate remuneration, if that is your answer? And then, then a parallel one from Dave Penman, who says, no one would argue that for the functional model to work, you need high quality technical leadership and strong capability. But how do you square with an approach to reward that has fallen so far behind the market for senior or technical roles? Okay, I mean, there are two, two, I got two different answers to, to each of those actually. And I think, uh, and I'm not well qualified to answer the first one about uh, the ability to recruit and retain um, top, end, top end accountancy type professionals and tax type professionals in, in HMRC. Um, um, and um, and there may be a specific uh, because that 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 is a capability that is directly transferable. But what I would say is that um, people do transfer between the two, and and for people um, uh, and people doing a stint in HMRC does actually make them market more marketable outside or can do, and so that. The, the rewards are not just uh, financial, but I, I, I'm not qualified to give a definitive answer on that. To Dave's point on uh, reward for technical leaders uh, in government, I, I've often heard this argument made that the public sector needs to be competitive uh, with the private sector. Um, and I don't really agree. Um, uh, people, you know, and, and it isn't just that you want to you want people who have a strong public service gene um you know those of us who spent most of our lives in public service we have that we have that gene and we've been um, perfectly happy to uh do what we do for much less than possibly um probably not in my case but um uh, your market worth outside um that doesn't mean you can just rely on that but um, uh, my point on this is if you say we've got, we're going to pay, comp it, it isn't the right measure. You've you got to not take the mickey. You've got not to expect to hire top quality people for pay, which is ridiculous. Um, but equally, you to lead these functions across government, um, the head of the chief digital officer for government, the head of commercial, uh, for government, head of pro all of these things, you want the best people there. You want the, the, the top what, what, one of the top five people in the country to come and do these things. And there is absolutely no way in which the government is ever going to be able to offer pay which is even comparable with what they will command in the private sector. Um, so what you want is people who whose reward will be again not taking the mickey financially uh, but uh, but whose reward is to have the chance to make change happen on a big scale you know when we were driving these uh, changes through in the coalition government we got people to come and do these jobs at the center of government for frankly a fraction of what they could command in the private sector and they did so because they had the chance to make historic change happen um, and that is has its own reward um, and obviously you want people with a strong public service gene um, because if they don't have that they're not the people you want anyway and you know there was a time in the Blair government where 
um, they, there was a kind of culture, we need to pay public private sector um, salaries to get the best people. Actually, it didn't really work because um, you, you don't get, because you're not going to get the very best people for that money, um, if that's what, the, what you're holding out for them, um, they actually didn't get the best people. Um, what gets the best people is the chart is status. So the sense that you're going to have the right status, and that goes back to the parity of esteem point, the white collar, blue collar divide I talked about earlier. Uh, but it's also about the mandate. Uh, are these people going to have the chance to make it happen or are they going to get bogged down in bureaucracy um, and the inability to get traction uh, with making difficult things happen? And that's the big I think that's the big differentiator. I'm not saying that the money doesn't matter. It does matter, but it's not the it's not the decisive factor. Mm. No, I can see that we're talking about officials here. Though it was occurring to me as you were talking that it applies to the prime minister as well. Incidentally, do you think the prime minister should be paid more? Uh, I think minister generally should be paid more. Um, I've never taken the view that MPs should be should be paid more, um, but ministers should definitely be paid more. We, we are, and I did try to persuade David Cameron actually at the very beginning um, of the 2015 government to do a, to, to commission a review, look at the com comparables with other countries where British ministers are massively underpaid uh, by comparison. And you could have said, this is the time we can do it, we can yeah. look at it, and you would not have bring it in until after a subsequent five-year period. Mm. Uh, so that it wouldn't look like it was self-interested, um, but at some stage it does need to be. It does need to be done. It's 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 ludicrous. Thank you. Got an interesting one on on Brexit. Something we haven't mentioned yet uh, from Geert Buchardt and uh, Ku Levin in in Belgium, asking: Do the Brexit triggered transfers of competences from Brussels to the UK affect the centre of government in in London? Uh, that is all these all these things that the UK now has to do for itself and how does that affect this transfer if you like uh, affect the coordination between the centres of government in the UK uh, that is looking at Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland uh, as well as England? Well this is far from being a special subject to me um, for me but um, but I can see yeah I, and, and I don't really know what what the answer is obviously there are competences that need to uh, uh, particularly in departments like DEFRA, um, no doubt Bayes and, 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 and many others uh, where um, com competence need to be divided up and of course um, and that, that then has ramifications for devolution which have been um, which I'm sure aren't over yet but, um, but I, this is not something I'm, I'm well qualified to comment on. Okay, we've got one that's that's anonymous, but asking you just to expand a bit on um, your view of the centre and um, uh, and noting comments uh, about your view, which you may may or may not agree with, saying that it is part of a plan uh, that might create might create a new department for the prime minister, and the, the questioner is is asking um, what such a department might look like. Uh, might it be more like the uh, OMB, the Office of Management and Budget in the U in the US, which you refer to? Well, I think um, that could be a, a feature of it to say, I don't think it's particularly about have expanding the centre. Um, I think it is about making, um, as I said, making the centre more coordinated, more joined up um, and being a bit more realistic about what, what in a modern, highly connected um, uh, world, um, 
you would how how you would set up what needs to be a proper head office function, a headquarters function, which is not about concentrating power uh, in the center. And if you look at any big complicated business, a, a multinational corporation, um, what you have is a strong center, um, and in good times, the center relaxes the strings, and there's more autonomy um, uh, given to different functions and, and, and divisions and departments. And in the difficult times, you very quickly draw those strings in, so more controlled from the center. And so I don't think there's a perfect way of doing this that exists for all time. Um, and, and it isn't one size fits all for all time. Uh, what you need is the ability to flex it in response to circumstances. Um, and um, so should there be a department of of Prime Minister? Well, we are very unusual in that there isn't one. Um, mm. and, um, and and so I would say what you need to think of, you need to think of the centre of government um, as being these three entities, number 10 Downing Street, Cabinet Office, Treasury, um, and, um, uh, and maybe configure it in a different way, in a more joined up way. Um, but I don't think. Um, um, but I don't think you need to. Uh, but, but, I mean, uh, uh, but you do need to, to um, work on the basis that this is a this is a single organisation. I was very struck early on when I came back into government, looking at internal audit. I, I naively assumed that internal audit meant it was internal to the government, um, and it turned out that was far from the case. It was internal to each department, um, and. One of the good things the Treasury did was to create um, a single or what was meant to be a single internal audit agency, but it isn't for the whole of government. Joining it is still mm. is still voluntary. Um, and this idea that somehow um, government can in these days be a sort of extremely loose kind of confederation of basically autonomous entities is just and for the birds, that's, uh, mm. that's just not possible these days. Let me go on to one from Sue Street, which is an important question that really goes to the kind of debate people are having now about coronavirus, about what should be done at the centre and what absolutely needs to be done at, at local areas. And she says, uh, I supported many of your reforms, including the departmental management boards with non-executive. Um, with NEDS, but, but could the very strong centralisation and control prevent delivery departments getting closer to citizens to ensure policies are genuinely operationalised? Um, well, I think Sue's absolutely right uh, that, that you have to you have to get this balance right. Um, and, you know, it's what is sometimes called the tight, loose balance. Work out what are the things that you need to control tightly from the centre and the functional model is essential um, to that and the spend controls are essential uh, to that. But then the loose part is how do you then within the within the departments push control out to the front line? Um, one of the programs we we much uns, un, under sung uh, programs was the public service mutuals program uh, where we supported groups of um, public sector workers to take themselves out of the public sector to create an employee led and owned entity to carry on to continue to deliver the service. Most of them chose to be over 100 of these 
spun themselves out. Most of them chose to be a not-for-profit social enterprise, uh, but they had a huge um, improvement in productivity, reducing costs, improving quality and improving productivity. And the reason was that they were free to, they, they felt themselves freed from constraints so they could innovate and do things differently because they were at the front line. They could see how things could be done differently. And I remember during one year when we were doing um, the civil service live events around the country and I think up in Newcastle I was talking to a group of civil servants and someone first question was someone who was quite truculent and argumentative and I thought you were going to have a go at me and he said the main problem I have is dealing with the bureaucracy in my own department. Um, he said I work at the front line, my job is to help people get a job but my main barrier is my own department's bureaucracy so the loosening up of the front of controls to free up people to give people more responsive personal responsibility for how they deliver the service at the front end that is something that is not going to get changed from the center of government that gets changed from the leadership of the individual departments mm. Thank you, and thank you very much to Ruth Dixon uh, from the University of Oxford for asking a parallel question um, uh, on, um, on on a centre and, and local government. Um, appreciated. Let me come to one from um, Yuvraj Semi, who's asking, to what extent would you uh, contend that the recent merger of, uh, of DFID, the development uh, department, and uh, the Foreign Office improves efficiency in carrying out foreign policy? Um, I think it makes a load of sense um, and um, uh, I think it makes sense for, for these to be brought together. Um, I, um, and I, to be honest, when we were, when I was in government, I had so little to do. The Foreign Office has always made a huge thing about how what they do is completely unique and distinctive and none of what I was doing could possibly uh, be allowed to apply to the Foreign Office. And frankly, life was too short to, to, to take that on, um, uh, even though we were pretty skeptical about some of it. Um, uh, DFID being a big and uh, department, which wasn't subject actually to the same sort of efficiency constraints as the rest of government because their budget was fixed by law. Um, and so, you know, that they, they didn't have a massive, I mean, there was, I'm not saying it was badly run at all, but they didn't have a, an efficiency imperative um, mm. because um, their, their budget was large and, and growing pro rata with the economy. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I think there are there definitely should be significant synergy benefits. I mean, I've always thought one of the ways uh, it was absurd to have junior ministers in the Foreign Office and DFID um, covering the same parts of the world. You should try and bring that together and that got some of the benefits, but you know, there will undoubtedly be synergies to be had from it, for sure. Mm. Um, great. I've got one um, I want to squeeze in from Kate R, uh, which uh, speaks to a real IFG theme about turnover in, in, in the staff in the civil service. Yep. And she says, I was loaned to the cabinet office in 2012 to work on civil service reform, it seemed that majority of staff there were on loan or secondments, which re resulted in an ongoing churn of staff and loss of, of, mem of, of, of institutional memory uh, with the risk of reinventing the wheel. Is this culture still prevalent? 
I mean, um, I had a, a interesting minor example of this that the uh, very good, capable civil servant who was assigned to support my review. Um, I noticed um, um, after about two weeks that he had ceased to appear on my Zoom calls. Um, so I asked what had happened and I was told that like, the week before he'd moved on to another job. I mean, no one had bothered to tell me. Um, but this rotation of, of civil servants is, is really problematic. Um, and no, no sensible organization would permit it. Um, so um, uh, it, when I was certainly when I was in government first time round in the 80s, um, there was a much stronger culture of people's careers being proactively managed and, and business need was the most important thing. You know, of course you want people to be fulfilled and to have the chance to develop in the right way, but civil servants work in, in government to fulfill a need, um, not not we don't employ them in all, for their own personal satisfaction. And this culture that's developed where civil servants are completely free to apply for any job they like within the system in, in some other part of the system and move to it and often incentivized to do that because that's the only way they can get promotion. This is ludicrous. Um, the, the people's pe people should not be able to go to another part of of, the, of government on a whim um, if it's not the right thing. No, again, no big successful um, outside organisation would would operate like this. Of course, you want to accommodate people's preferences, and you can't stop them if they want to leave the civil service altogether. But this sort of freedom to move wherever the hell they like within the system um, is is a real uh, a, 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 there's a real penalty in effectiveness and loss of loss of institutional memory, loss of continuity, all of these things um, uh, which uh, which are imperiled by this. Just want to bring in um, towards the end. I'm squeezing one or maybe two uh, questions. Um, there's a kind of yelp of pain from uh, several people writing anonymously about the truth to power question. Uh, one citing the exit of Jonathan Slater, who was permanent secretary of the Department for Education, I should say, is on the IT board, um, um, and, and who uh, left after um, with, uh, the, the uh, A levels and exams um, debacle this this summer. And others saying, look, all the briefing uh, in the press against civil service, you know, surely. Um, Francis Moore, you, you, you can see that this isn't, doesn't encourage civil servants to stand up to ministers. No, I agree, and and um, uh, and, and and it shouldn't happen. But it's a question not it's not a question of standing up to ministers. It's a question of telling ministers the truth um, and giving them um, giving them good, well evidenced advice. But then um, making sure that what the decision, the eventual decision is, is, is properly carried out. I should say, I mean, uh, I, I've been critical about some aspects of the civil service. Um, I think um, one of the, uh, the, there are plenty of failings on the side of, of ministers as well. Uh, I would like to see much more formal training of, of ministers. I think the political parties should should be much more vigorous in properly assessing the capability of candidates for ministerial office, working out what their strengths are, as you would again in a normal, a normal business, 
and then equipping them, ideally before they become ministers, with some of the skills you need to be an effective minister. This idea that you can pluck someone from this, what is inevitably a limited talent pool of, of uh, backbenchers in the House of Commons, um, and suddenly expect them to be high-performing ministers is, is again, it's, it's ludicrous. That yeah. is something I think that also needs to be properly addressed on a cross-party basis. Uh I, I, absolutely, and it is. I'm so sorry. We're going to have to come to an end there, um, um, as we, we have uh, reached the witching hour. But that is that your last point is absolutely something the institute works a lot on and uh, works out privately as well. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off in mid-flow, and we clearly could go on, or I could, and the questioners certainly could, and I suspect you could. But we are going to have to um, wrap up then. So, Francis Moore, thank you very, very much for answering uh, so many questions of, of mine and uh, the very large audience. Um, I'm sorry for all the questions I couldn't get in. There were some excellent ones, but some of them quite long. Um, and um, we, we just uh, uh, run out of time. Um, but questions noted uh, for our own work. And thank you. Um, thank you all for joining us. And thank you very much to the IFG team who put this together. Thank you for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Mm -hmm.